we tend to assign people characteristics based on our interactions with them. And sometimes we tend to assign people characteristics just based on our perception of them. And often we're proved wrong. And I think one of the times that I was most proved wrong was my senior year in high school. My senior year in high school, I had done the pretty idiotic thing, which was apply to Appalachian at the very first moment, and I got accepted at the end of September, which means that the rest of the year was a complete waste of time whatsoever. No matter what happened, I was like, I don't care, I'm going to college, whatever. Hey, my dad's like, you need to study. I'm like, shut up, I'm going to college. It's all right. He's like, you think you are, but anyway. And then came trigonometry. And I want to tell you about Miss Lloyd, and I think she's going to be with Jesus, so we can talk about her. But Miss Lloyd looked like a villain from every 80s movie that you've ever been in. She was my trigonometry teacher. She looked like the number two general in Star Wars that was the evil general that was, you know, to Darth Vader, but just with a women's haircut. I don't think she'd ever laughed in her life. She might have smiled once or twice. Um, probably enjoyed, you know, catching cats in her yard and taking them to the ASPCA, things like that. I mean, she was a hard lady, and I did not do well in her class. And, you know, and I'm not talking like, you know, I made like an 82. I'm talking like there'd be a test and I'd make like a 42. And it was not because I didn't know what was going on. It was because I was completely complacent. I just didn't care. I was apathetic. And not only did I not care, but I began to perceive that she just had a deep-seated disdain for me. And that made it so much easier for me to just not care about her class. And, and I don't know what it was, but I, you know, I would perceive her giving me this test back, and she would just kind of have this glowing, now Cindy, good job, now Brooke, good job, now Thomas, good job. Paul Cummings, you know, and just kind of give me, give me this, and just kind of look down at me, and I was just kind of like, yeah, whatever, Miss Lloyd, I don't care. And then she'd send messages home to my parents, you know, which I'd take them and they'd be like, this Miss Lloyd, she just seems like you're having problems. And I'd be like, it's not me, it's her. She's got a voodoo doll of me at home. And she's, you know, well, my perceived disdain that she had for me was reflected back to her. I just gave it right back to her. And I also developed this whole idea that she did not want me to do well. She wanted me to fail. It was her mission for me to fail. And so I labored under that. And whenever somebody would ask me, hey, how's Trig going? I'd be like, it's terrible. My teacher's evil. And it, was fine. it wasn't until finally, you know, we're, we're blessed that we have these year-end statewide exams where you can kind of bomb everything but do well on the statewide exam. And y'all, I made 100 on the statewide exam. Blessed. There's grace, and there's grace for the Lord. And she gives me back my exam at the end of the year. And this whole year, we, I have labored under this assumption that she hates me and the feeling is mutual and I have disdain for her. And she hands it back to me and I make this eye contact with her shortly. And she just looks at me and she's like, good job, good job, you got it. I'm so glad you got it. And at the time I was like, this evil woman is just trying to be nice to me. She probably just wants free Appalachian football tickets. That's probably all that's going on. She's heard about me, knows that I'm going to app, knows about the early, she's, and it, was, it really wasn't until years later that I realized it was all in my mind. This whole perceived disdainment that she had for me was just that, a perception. And I, then my perception back to her was completely unfair, and it was unfounded. And one thing that we come to Ezekiel this morning, 
Ezekiel has been doing something, and he changes gears right here in this moment. And that the Lord has been reporting through Ezekiel and saying, Ezekiel, here's what the movements of my hand are going to be like. Here's what the works of my hands are going to be like. Here's the destruction of my hands, of my kingdom, the things that my hands are going to do. And in Ezekiel 33, he says, I'm going to change. I'm not just going to talk to you about the works of my hand, but I want to show you the posture of my heart. I want to show you, Ezekiel, I want you to tell the people, what's the posture of my heart? What's my heart like? Tell them what my heart is like. And so we get to kind of the second part of Ezekiel's messages. Now this is the part, Ezekiel 33 on, goes on. Now this is actually post-destruction. Remember we said there's going, to be, there's going to come an exile that's going to come and report to you, Ezekiel, from Jerusalem and tell you the things that happened. And then at that moment, your mouth is going to be open and you're going to be able to continue to prophesy. And so here we are, and now we have that has happened. This post-destruction period has happened. But he says, this time, I want you to tell them about my heart, about my heart and who I am. And I want you to engage these folks. Now, in this part, he says again, son of man, son of man. But now I want you to hear it not only as then I'm sovereign Lord, but I want you to hear this of a Ezekiel, you have a familial element with these people. These are your people. You are of them. Tell them my message of repentance. Tell them my message of love and care for them. Tell them my father's heart ache. And the word turn occurs eight times in this text. To repent, to turn. Now, I'm going to talk about this more in contemporary, but this text is talking to you also as well about the difference between regretting something you've done, having remorse for something you've done, and having repentance for something you've done. Now, we all regret things that we do. Remorse means that we have remorse and we stop doing it. In case of idolatry, someone could say, well, I regret worshiping that idol. Remorse is, I regret worshiping that idol and I'm going to drop that idol. Repentance is, I regret worshiping that idol, I'm going to drop that idol, and I'm going to turn and worship the Lord. You see, remorse is that almost, and a lot of Christians stop there, but this text is talking about turning, turning to the Lord in repentance. And so in this text, he begins by saying, son of man, I'm I'm appointing you to be a watchman. Now, the important part of this is, this is a reaffirmation here on the backside of all the destruction that has happened. A reaffirmation, the same thing that happened in chapter 4, and a reiteration of the same sentiment that's in chapter 18. That, son of man, I'm appointing you to be a watchman. Everyone that lived in Jerusalem or everyone that lived in Mesopotamia at that time would know what that was. If you watch Game of Thrones, you know, the people that are on the night watch, that's their thing that they're supposed to do. You are called to report on what is going on. You are called to give the people warning in time for them to prepare and do something. A watchman is not a good watchman if the enemy is banging on the gates and then the watchman turns around and says, hey, they're here. A watchman's job is far off so that the people can prepare, can do, and in in this case, on the spiritual side, repent and turn. He says, that's your job, and I'm recalling you to rededicate and recommit yourself to that. And so in verses 7 through 9, we get this again. If you got your Bibles, turn with me. So in verses 7 through 9 of this text, he says, Ezekiel, listen, same thing as I told you in chapter 4. Your job is to report what I tell you. If you fail to report, the guilt is going to be upon you. But if you report and people fail to turn, then it is on them. It is on them. And then he says they need to repent, literally to stop and turn away. And repentance involves a change of heart and direction. Now, you can change your mind about something all day long. You can change and you can change your body on something all day long. But you can't always change your mind 
change your heart and change your direction. That is an act of the will. And remember, he's saying, don't let them get stuck in just remorse. Because remorse is where verse 10 happens. In verse 10, we get remorse. And he says, listen, son of man, you're one of them. And son of man, you're one of them. You're one of them. I am God. But then hear this in verse 10, the second part of verse 10. The people say, the burdens of our sin, the burdens of our sin, they're just too much. And God says, I know. And you and I here on the other side of the gospel repeat these verses. Romans 3, 23. For the wages of sin are death. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavily burdened. Take off the yoke of oppression that you have and take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you hear the people say this and God responds. And in verse 11, you get the sheer enumeration of his response in verse 11. The crux of the entire verse. And God says in verse 11, see my heart. See my heart. Micah 7, 18. Don't you know that I'm a God that delights in showing mercy? I'm a God that delights in showing mercy. See my heart. This is the Father's plea. Do you think that I enjoy this? Do you think that I'm somehow Miss Lloyd up here loving flunking people? He says, see my heart. And you need to balance all the judgment and wrath I have against sin, against the mercy that I so desire for people to have. All I want for them is to turn. And so this is where Peter gets this 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. Don't think that God is slow in bringing his judgment. Realize that God wants to save all people. He desires that all people come to a saving grace through salvation in Jesus Christ. I don't want anyone to perish. I want to give them time to repent. And so then in verses 12, 13, 14, and 15, we get kind of this interesting pre-gospel idea of morality and judgment, of past sins and current repentance, and past repentance and current sin. And so he says, listen, remember, remember this. I'm giving you the same sentiment that's in, that's in chapter 18. And I'm going to say this, to the, say this to you all just so you remember. Past good, the past good that you have doesn't mean that the current evil that you're doing is going to be okay because of the past good. But then on the flip side of that, he says, but if, you're, if you are guilty of past evil, if you will repent now, I'm not going to hold the past evil against you. And if you think to yourself, well, didn't, didn't God say again and again that I will revisit the sins of the, the sins of the fathers and the sons? Remember, that's talking about in the context of, of consequences. So if you want to think of a more concrete example, think about the promised land. The sins of the generation are visited on the generation that sinned. And that generation that sinned doesn't get to what? Go into the promised land. But he doesn't say to the current generation of Joshua and Caleb, he doesn't say, well, your forefather sins, you don't get to go in either. Remember, there's a difference between the consequences of sin and the discipline and the punishment for sin. And so in verse 16, in verse 16, you and I get this immense foreshadowing of the gospel. This immense foreshadowing of the gospel. That they might live. That they would repent and live. Now, does he say repent and then that they're never going to die? What does the live in that text mean? That they will live in spirit. That they will live with the Lord. And you and I get that. John 14 part, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I will come back and get you and then you and I will dwell, we will tabernacle, we will tent together. Then verses 17, 18, and 19, this is then God then puts people into the witness chair and comes and stands and prosecutes them and he says, listen, these people, 
you people, rather than sitting around and critiquing whether I am fair or not, how about you simply obey the very simple, straightforward commands I'm giving you? And he says, people, why are you sitting around saying, well, we can't do this, we've done this, we've done this, the sins are heavy upon us, the God, is, the God of heavens, the God of the earth, he's not being fair with us. And, and God's saying, listen, I'm God. The commands I give to you are direct. And they will, what did he say? They will result in you living. Instead of sitting around and arguing about whether I am fair or not, instead of turning around and taking me, the ultimate judge, and trying to put me in the witness chair and question me and say, are you fair? Are you doing whatever? He said, how about you turn and look at yourself and say to yourself, did God give us strange and ridiculous commands that no one can find out? Or did he give us simple commands which Christ boiled down to two? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and greatest command. And the second is equally as important, love your neighbor as yourself. How difficult is that? And he says, instead of arguing about whether I'm fair or not, look at how simple my commands are for you to be my people and for me to be your God. And so we get to this part where we're here at the end where we go to and we say, is God fair? What do you as a watchman called out to do? What do people do in response to the watchman? Do we listen when the watchman does call out and call to us and say, turn? And do we listen in time to actually turn? There are two reasons I'm glad Paul started with that story about his trigonometry teacher. Reason number one is I got an A in trigonometry. Reason number two is because it gives me a good parallel to where I wanted to go in terms of the uh, Franklin Graham uh, uh, crusade, or they call it Decision America Tour, this Thursday evening. And I wrote in a newsletter that I realize people have different uh, senses about this particular event and even Franklin Graham. And the most common criticism for Franklin Graham is he's not his father, uh, to which Franklin himself said, you're right, I'm not my father, and I'm not trying to be Billy Graham. But uh, at the same time, I have a lot of personal empathy for Franklin Graham on that point because the first five or ten years of my life, people reminded me consistently, you're not Dr. Althaus. Um, and he'd been dead 25 years. So, you know, there, there are those legacies that are just hard to live up to. And I'm aware that whoever follows me is going to hear like, you're not Bob Thompson. Now, I hope that person's not Bob Thompson, right? You need somebody else. So I'm aware of that. But I'm also aware that all of us who are messengers are flawed, and there are different levels of flaw. And so there are a lot of things that Franklin Graham says that I think I would say differently, but those who know him best, and this is where I wanted to connect to what Paul said about his uh, trigonometry teacher, those who know Franklin Graham best uh, say, you just need to trust his heart. And so he's going to say things differently. The implications of the gospel for him may be a little bit different than everybody else, but his bottom line heart is, I love Jesus and I want people to know Jesus, and the gospel does have social and moral and, uh, in his mind, even political implications. And so, you know, I may not like everything that he says, but I trust his heart, that his heart is on Jesus, and that's why I'm going to be there on Thursday night, invite others to go. We have some uh, Yard signs in our welcome center if you'd like to share that with your neighbors as well. The other reason that Franklin Graham is so uh, important for this particular text, and I immediately made the connection, is that Franklin Graham sees himself as a watchman. 
And a watchman is responsible to speak what he or she knows. Whether or not it's popular, whether or not it's perceived correctly, whether or not people like the message, when you are under the conviction that God has told you to say something, you speak up if you're a watchman. And so this text has two parts of it, and one is the watchman's role, which is to speak up. And God says to Ezekiel in very sobering words, he says to Ezekiel, look, if you don't speak up, people are still going to die in their sins, but I'm not only going to hold them responsible, I'm going to hold you responsible because you didn't speak up. The second part of the text is to shape up, and that's to those who hear. And so this part of the message is, look, when you hear a message, yes, you have some discernment that you need to make, whether this is a message from God, but when God calls you through whatever vessel he calls you, whether or not that person is flawed, whether or not you like uh, everything that the person says, when God calls you to shape up, your responsibility is to shape up. And so that's the essence of this text. It's a speak-up text, and it's a shape-up text. But we still come to it and we find ourselves a little bit uncomfortable because this is now, what, the fifth week in a row we've heard from Ezekiel, like you're, you're, you're rotten, you're sinners, you're going to die, you're, you know, you're idolaters, you're rebellious, you're evil, and we're going like, how much more of this do we need to hear? And the answer is we're getting ready to turn the corner actually in Ezekiel, starting with next week, because the first 32 chapters of Ezekiel are this message of judgment and doom. But then the last, uh, the, the chapters after that, the last 16 chapters are chapters of restoration and hope. So we're going to turn that corner. And our chapter in chapter 33 today is actually the pivotal moment. Had Pastor Amy read one more verse, and it's not her fault she didn't, we asked her to read what she did, but had she read one more verse, we would have gotten to the fall of Jerusalem. And that's the pivotal moment. So we're, this is the last message before we actually get in Ezekiel that Jerusalem has fallen. And this combination of shape, speak up and then shape up also leads us into what God's desire is. So all through Ezekiel, my quest has been, okay, the situation is not the same, the people are not the same, America is not Israel, but, but God is the same. So what is, the, what is the, the doctrine or the nature, the character of God that we so see so clearly in Ezekiel chapter 33, this God is our God? And my answer actually backs up a little bit to a couple chapters where Ezekiel turned from uh, condemning and judging Israel to its neighbors, there are eight chapters on the neighbors of Israel, but right in the middle of that, he tells you why he is speaking up about the neighbors of Israel. And here's what he says. He says, the purpose of the judgment is to make sure that you know when Israel regathers, they're not going to have these neighbors around them who are going to oppose them. And he says, they're going to be free from their malicious neighbors who are painful briars and sharp thorns. In other words, I want my people to live in security and prosperity, to have life and hope. And one of the things you're concerned about is all these people are taking away from it. I'm going to take care of them too, right? But then in our passage, I love how Ezekiel then turns to the desire of God when he says in chapter 33, verse 11, as 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 surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. You want to hear the desire of God? The desire of God is life. You say, well, is he talking about eternal life or is he talking about life here on earth? Yes. Is he talking about spiritual life 
or physical life? Yes. Is he talking about your personal life or the life of the community? And the answer is yes. God is always in, the f- in favor of life. God wants life. He wants life for every individual. And the reason that he is speaking this message through Ezekiel is because if people don't, if Ezekiel doesn't speak up and people don't shake up, shape up, there will be death. And God wants life. So the desire of God is life. And that calls, me, uh, calls my attention to the scripture that I put on the inside upper left of your bulletin from 2 Peter 3, which says, The Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. The desire of God is that we would repent in order that we might have life. So one final comment, I think this is going to be one of my last ones about Ezekiel's message of repentance and judgment. It might help some of you to think uh, through the grid of what's called an intervention. When an addict has gone to the point of, we know that if we continue to enable this behavior, you're going to kill yourself and destroy every relationship, then the people who love that person the most and in whom that person has the most confidence get together, maybe with an intervention specialist, and say, look, we have decided collectively we are no longer going to do anything that supports your addiction. And it's going to feel very harsh to you, but we want you to live. Ezekiel is our intervention specialist, and he is saying to us, look, I am here to remind you that God wants you to live, and this is your final chance to repent in order that you might have life. That is the desire of God, and that is this God is our God, the same God that Ezekiel has is the God who says to you and me, look, I'm trying to get the message to you as many ways as possible. I want you to live. I want you to live now with abundant life that Jesus promises, and I want you to live forever with me. So when Jesus shows up on the scene, you know, you say this is just an Old Testament message, right? Jesus shows up on the, on the scene. What does he say first? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance is a gospel message. Repentance means that, as Paul said, we turn away from the things that are driving us away from God, and we turn to the Lord. But listen, just briefly, all of the Old Testament is a beautiful, wonderful, powerful setup for the gospel. This is gospel here. And the purpose of the Old Testament over and over again is to show you how, how much and how often and how deeply we fall short of the glory of God. All our sinning, all have fallen short of the glory of God, are falling short of the glory of God. This is the message. And Jesus comes going like, I'm going to remind you one more time, you're not getting it, you're not, you're not honoring me, but then by his life and death and resurrection, he makes a way for God to see us as if we have never sinned. So this message of repentance is just as true for us. It is still the desire of God, but the reason that God desires that we repent is so that when we name our sins, we know our sins, he can then blanket us with his grace on the cross of Jesus Christ. So the desire of God is still life. All over the Bible, from one end to the other, it's just that the method for the moment may change from time to time in the scriptures, but the desire of God is always life, and life always involves turning from the things that will destroy us to the one who will remake us, regenerate us, give us abundant life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we gather around today around the table of the Lord, and our children who are 
uh, in our first communion class in a moment, I would just like, uh, when it's time for communion, if you'd wait just a moment so that the children and their families can come first uh, for the table of the Lord and then allow uh, everyone else to come as you generally do. We'll have two stations on the side for um, intinction and then we'll have individual trays in the middle. Before we go there, I would like you to join me once again in a confession of sin. It's printed on your bulletin. It will be on the, sc the screens as well. When we take communion, and I'm aware more than maybe anybody else of the time when we get to this point. I'm going like, this is going to go a few minutes over. And if you're conscious or maybe you weren't until I said something, like, just would you set that aside for a moment? Because these are holy moments, and they are moments in which we meet the Lord, and we meet the Lord at the cross. Doesn't matter how flawed the spokesperson is, and I'm the spokesperson before you today. It's not about who's preaching or teaching or leading. It's not about distractions in the sanctuary. It's not even about whoever might have been kind to you or good to you this week. It's not even about how good or bad you were this week. It's about bringing our brokenness and our sins and remembering again that as we turn to the Lord in confession, we name what we know that might be a barrier between us and him and us and others, and then we come receiving again this incredible gift, this reminder that by Jesus Christ we are declared not guilty as if we had never sinned in the first place. Would you join me please as we confess our sins? Holy and heavenly Father, I hear the words rebellion, defiance, and idolatry. I confess they describe my heart, my words, and my actions the way you see them. Lord Jesus Christ, I believe in you. You are my only hope. By your life, death, and resurrection, I am known, loved, and forgiven. Holy Spirit, pierce my soul with my own unworthiness and open my eyes to my sins. Give me freedom that comes only when I admit my guilt before you. Amen. Let us continue our confession in silence. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, says the Sovereign Lord, but rather that they would turn from their sins and live. Thank God for the way of life he has opened for us in Jesus Christ. Amen.